Okay, so we are studying the book of Acts together, so if you have a Bible, please turn there with me. Um, Acts chapter 11, I'll read the verses that we're covering today. It's a shorter verse than last week. Um, we're in Acts chapter 11, we're beginning at verse 19 and finishing up the chapter. If you don't have a Bible, there's some in the back. You can grab one now, and when the kids get dismissed in a minute, you can grab one. Uh, if you don't own one, please take it with you, it's our gift to you. As I said before, if you've taken them and you've got 12 at home, bring some back. <laughs> I've been meaning to bring those back. I'm really getting a pile here. Yeah, yeah, bring them back. Keep one, keep two even if you want, but anyway, we're in Acts chapter 11, verse 19 together. Hear the word of the Lord. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, tra- over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Spreading the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. Verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he had came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Verse 24, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught great many people. In Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. Verse 29. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Um, We read this story, Lord, and we're praying that... um, bring some application to this church, to our lives as individuals, our lives as a people, as a church. Lord, the the story of Acts really has not finished. You have not come back. We are caught up. King's Chapel in Glenmont is caught up in the story of what you're doing, seeking and saving lost people and restoring and renewing all of creation. Father, we pray that as we see uh, this passage unfold before us, Lord, you would speak to our hearts. Lord, you would encourage us and exhort us as well that we would see Christ and see the opportunities and the responsibility that we have as a mouthpiece, a tool for your glory and for our joy. So we pray, Father, bless this time, bless the kids as they go, the teachers that are teaching. Lord, again, that we would see Christ lifted up, make much of him today. In Jesus' precious name we pray and for his glory. Amen. Kids, you're dismissed. Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. We're going to get a a glimpse today, really a beginning look at one of the most important churches in the New Testament, or in the book of Acts, I should say. Some would say maybe Jerusalem, but this is the church of Antioch. Last week, if you remember, we wrapped up an important event that took place in the life of church. It was the first major spread of the gospel going to the Gentiles, which are non-Jewish people. In chapter 10, all of chapter 10, part of chapter 11, we saw the incident unfold as God was preparing Peter, letting him know, preparing him to to, to see that knowing God, becoming a Christian, was not about becoming a Jew first, and that every people group was invited to respond or invited to hear and respond to the gospel. Up to this point, it was all about really being Jewish And and now it's simply repenting of your sins, believing in Jesus, trusting in Jesus, and and you can be saved. God showed Peter by this incident and through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, this little mini Pentecost we talked about last week, during the preaching to an Italian um, centurion and his family in Caesarea, if you remember. This Gentile Pentecost, as some call it, was showing the the work of God, and really connecting the original Pentecost that took place in Acts chapter 2 and this mini Pentecost, this Gentile Pentecost, together that these events were, were connected. There was unity. where there was, um, 
uh, continuum in, in these events that God had accepted these Gentiles not coming through Judaism but by faith alone in Christ alone. And that was very important. It was very important. And now we see in this very Gentile city God doing great things in his church in the city of Antioch. Antioch, we will see, was established by some Greek-speaking Jewish Christians that fled Jerusalem during the martyrdom, during the murder of Stephen the evangelist, the deacon. And they had went, and, and when, they, when they fled Jerusalem, remember if you met a couple weeks ago, they went gospelizing, they went sharing their faith about Jesus all over, and some of them went to Antioch, and God birthed the church there in that Gentile city. So you see the gospel spreading. So as we look at chapter 11, these few verses, we are going to look at it under three main, really pretty simple, kind of basic, three main settings. The first is the stretching church. We're going to see how this church was being stretched in, 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 in their faith, in their, in their uh, evangelism. We're going to see the strengthening church, that the church is being strengthened. It's a great picture of this early church just being stretched, being strengthened, and how they were serving out of the fullness of the gospel in, in their lives and how the gospel was being just penetrating every area of their life. So that's what we're going to do. The stretching church, the strengthening church, and the serving church. Number one, the stretching church. Look at verse 19, chapter 11, verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of persecution that arose over Stephen... Right, we said back in chapter 8. By the way, we're about, most commentators put this out about seven years, eight years maybe, since Stephen's martyrdom. So death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. Shortly after that, you got Stephen's martyrdom. And then we're talking about seven, eight years or so after that, the story kicks in. Okay, so about time after that, people have fled Jerusalem because of the persecution Stephen was stoned to death it says that they traveled as far as Phoenicia Cyprus Antioch speaking the word to no one except Jews verse 20 but there were some of them men of Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch during this persecution during the spreading of the gospel spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus and the hand of the Lord do I have that yes and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Okay? So let's just take a moment, if we can, and let's talk a little bit about Antioch, because I want you all to, to sense the culture that this was written, written in. It's very important that we get a sense of it. I have a map of it. Let me see if you guys could see it. Um, okay. I think you can. Mediterranean Sea, obviously. Here is Phoenicia. Okay? Jericho, Jerusalem, right here. Joppa, remember from Joppa, we, we learned about Joppa, okay, Phoenicia, up here is Antioch, here's Tarsus, we're going to learn about Tarsus, here is Cyprus, here is North Africa, where we'll see Cyrene is at, okay, so this is the atmosphere, this is the general, so he is in Antioch, we're talking about people who fled and they went to Antioch from Jerusalem, now here's another one, is this okay, whoops, sorry, one too far, can we back up one? Oh, there we go. All right. Here, can you see that? Maybe not so that great, but I just want you to get. So here is Serene, Cyprus, Antioch. And Antioch, if you notice, is up here in this corner, not too far from, from Tarsus, but it was a very, very important city in that day. Very, very important city. Um, it was about 300 miles from Jerusalem and about 20 miles inland from the Mediterranean Sea. It actually was in between two mountains, uh, junction Taurus and, and Lebanon Mountains. It's located in southeast Turkey. It was the third largest city in the known world at that time. Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch. Those are the three largest cities. It was a melting pot. It had many, many different cultures, at least five that I read about. The Greeks, Romans, Africans, Arabs, and Asians. There was 7%, no, not 7, one-seventh percent of the population in Antioch was Jewish. They had some laws in Antioch that said to the Jews, you can come here and you could, you could, you could 
Worship the way you want. You're free to do as you wish here, pretty much, as long as you obey the Roman government. But there was freedom there for the Jews, so a lot of, a lot of Jews were, were going there. Antioch was famous for chariot races, but more famous for sexual sin. Okay? For, for, for really, uh, uh, it was a cosmopolitan, uh, cosmopolitan city and a pursuit of pleasure. Some people call it the Las Vegas of the Arantas River, which the river runs right through Antioch. Okay, uh, it was all kinds of sexual sin. It reminded me when I studied this passage, I'm looking up Antioch, it reminded me of Corinth, another gateway and a, another melting pot, not quite as big, but where there was a lot of sexual sin and a lot of people would go there in multicultural, multi-ethnic group. Um, they worshipped a, a god, Daphne, um, who was all about temple worship, temple prostitution. There was a, a, a stadium or a, a, a temple of her about five miles outside the city. Um, the famous story of the Greek god Apollos, if you know anything about that, he went after Daphne and they would, reinst- re- they would reenact this in the cities and all the prostitutes and all the male whores and the female prostitutes would, would you know, elicit people to come to this temple. So it was a wicked place, but it was a very rich place. It was a very commercial place. It was a, it was a business center. Okay, I want you to get to understand that it, it, it was very, very populated and had a lot of money. James Kelso, he's an archaeologist. He said Antioch was to Roman world what New York City is to ours. So the text says that these men came as far as Phoenicia, which we saw, okay, to the south, Cyprus from the coast, and they went to Antioch. And there was a group of them that went only and spoke only to the Jewish people there. So they went into the synagogues. They spoke to only the, to the Jews, Greek-speaking Jews, Hebrew-speaking Jews, whatever was there, and they were proclaiming Jesus Christ. But some of them, according to our text, from Cyprus and Cyrene, a North African area, also coming to Antioch, spoke to who? To the Hellenists, right? He spoke to the Hellenists. Now, we'll leave that for now. Now, I want you to get this picture in your head. You have some people going right to the synagogues in that city. And you have other people declaring the gospel to everyone that they, that they ran into. Now, the word Hellenist, which we saw, if you remember, a couple of weeks ago, could mean Greek-speaking Jews. It depends on the context. In our text here, it doesn't mean Greek-speaking Jews. They're talking about pagans. They're talking about non-Jews. They're talking about Gentiles. Some of your translations probably have the word Gentile in it. So if you look down at the text, it says in verse 20, some of them men of Cyprus and Cyrene, North Africa, coming to Antioch, spoke to the Gentiles, also preaching Christ. So there's a contrast between speaking to the Jews and speaking to the Gentiles. That's how we know. It doesn't mean Jewish, uh, Greek-speaking Jews. It means pagans. That's what it means. It means pagans. And that's very important to see. Because up to this point, the disciples of Jesus Christ, they're preaching the gospel. People are being converted. But now they're preaching the gospel to polytheists. They're multiple, they, there is no relationship to the God uh, of creation, Yahweh. And, and, and this is very different than what we've seen so far up to this point. Here's the gospel being preached with a very different religious and cultural perspective. This is a brand new outreach for the people in Antioch, and I want you to see that. Because up to now, if you remember, the gospel is being preached to the Hebrew Jews in Jerusalem, the Greek-speaking Jews in Jerusalem. If you remember, then the Samaritans received it. They're half-Jews. In fact, they had the same Bible as the Jews. They just believed in the first five books. Then a few weeks ago, we saw Philip, the evangelist, um, Pastor Ricky preached on it. He was a Gentile, but he was what? He was in his chariot reading the scroll of Isaiah. He was, he was coming back from Jerusalem where he was worshiping. Last week we saw this Italian centurion who was what? A God-fearer. He was someone who, who uh, the Jews loved him. He was, he was a pursuer of the one true and living God. They would be called God-fearers. But now, right here in this verse... Right in chapter 11, verse 20, the gospel is being preached to total pagans. First time in the book of Acts, preaching to someone who were not God-fearers. They were not ones who were pursuing the one true God. They were polytheists. They were, they were running after all kinds of false gods, dealing with all kinds of, 
of uh, Greek gods and worship of gods. And now the gospel is being preached to those pagans. You get that? Okay, so what we do have here is, uh, now I'm going to show it up. So you have the Jews, you have the Greek-speaking Jews, you have the Samaritans, then these Gentiles, which is the Ethiopian eunuch and the, the, the Italian uh, centurion, were God-fearers, and now the gospel for the first time in the book of Acts is really being preached to someone who is totally, totally outside the sphere of religious belief. They're pagans. If you look at cha- the end of chapter 11 and chapter 13, what you'll find there is that the leaders of this church, these teachers, these leaders of the church, were all kinds of different people. You had Barnabas, who's a Jew. We'll look at that in a little bit from Cyprus. You had the Apostle Paul, who's a Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews, very academic, kind of like a professor. You have Simeon, who is called the Niger, which means black. He's a black African. You have Lucius, who's from Cyrene, North Africa, more Arabic. Manian, which it says in chapter 13, is a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. So he's got money. He's got influence. He's, he's well off. So what you have here, and I want you to see this, is this multi-ethnic, multi-class, multinational church in the history of the New Testament coming together in Antioch. That's probably why they called them Christians first in Antioch. Up to that point, your nationality, your ethnicity would tell you who you were. Here you have all kinds of people from all kinds of backgrounds, from all kinds of nationalities, from all kinds of ethnicity following Jesus. Let's call them Christians. Multi, multi-gathering, a multi-ethnic gathering, and it's appropriate calling them the Christ ones. And the text tells us that as Christians, they were evangelizing. They were, they were gospel, gospelizing. They were sharing their faith. It doesn't say that the leaders from Jerusalem went to the church and then began to share their faith. That's not what happened. It's not the pastor that was doing it. It was the people in the church. People are the church. They were sharing their faith. They were telling. It was so natural to them, like breathing and, and walking. They were going in the streets and talking with people. Everyone was considered a missionary. That's what we say here as well. Empowered by the Holy Spirit to witness for the glory of God. That's, what, that's what's happening here. Just what God said. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. You'll receive power when the Spirit comes. You'll be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. So you see this happening. And you know what else is happening? This. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. What God said happened. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, now to the ends of the earth. Pagans are, being, are responding to the gospel. Pagans are responding to the gospel. Now, humanly speaking, and I say that carefully because God is sovereign, but humanly speaking, if that had not happened, we wouldn't be sitting here. I'm a Gentile. Pagan. The gospel went out. And let me point out too, look at our text. Verse 20, the word preach is not the word caruso. It's the word evangelizo, which means evangelism, conversations about Jesus. Chapter 11, verse 19 and 20, the word speaking, the word spoke, is the word of normal conversations. The implication is that these men who had gone were not to, to, to uh, Antioch, were not these orators, preachers in the marketplace, in the corners, calling out people. They were people that were just sharing life. They left everything they had in Jerusalem. They picked up new jobs. They had new homes. They had new friends. And, you know, they were telling people about Jesus. They were telling pagans who were going to pagan sacrificial worship and crazy sun gods and moon gods about Jesus. That's, that's what they were doing. They were encouraging and challenging them they were for, the, for the sole purpose of declaring the gospel. They were living on mission with God who's seeking and saving the lost. And verse 21 says, the hand of the Lord and the hand of the Lord was on them. Luke is using an Old Testament uh, idiom. It's, a, it's what they call an anthropomorphic idiom to depict the visible God uh, in human form, right? Not, it's not literal, but he, he's showing that his hand was upon him. In other words, the hand of God, the invisible power of God, was being displayed by this conversion of all these people coming to know Christ. Sovereign outpouring of his spirit taking place right here in Antioch. And God is drawing people to himself. Now, the thought about this is that how can I... Can I how can I share with you 
something that you can chew on and take home, seeing all this. And this is what I came up with. It's not a whole lot, but hopefully it's something. I put in my notes here. I wrote, now, there are no guarantees that God is working in a church solely, only, because of numbers. I get that. And there's no guarantee that God will numerically increase the kingdom of God through yours and I's gospelizing, sharing our faith. I get that. No guarantees. But there is a guarantee that he won't do any of that if we keep our mouths shut, our wallets and pockets and books closed, and our homes locked. That's a guarantee. It won't happen. So let me ask this question. And I ask it of myself as well. Do you want to see, I'm asking everyone in this room, you don't have to answer out loud. Do you want to see the hand of the Lord, the invisible hand, the invisible power of God being displayed in Glenmont, Albany, Selkirk, Delmar, Borisville, Westlow, surrounding communities? The gospel is being declared not because of a missionary mandate, it's because they can't keep quiet. They don't have to, they get to. I think it's significant that we're reading this and studying this about Antioch in this crooked, twisted, cosmopolitan city that God establishes a church, becomes a a, a mission post for, for the world when we just find out we are, Albany, the number one post Christian city in America, number two from the bottom of biblical literacy. The hand of the Lord was upon them. In Antioch, the secular pagan environment, regular folks began telling the gospel. Simple message of Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, turn from sin, believe in him, receive eternal life, have your sins forgiven. And let me tell you, there was no sidestepping of, of sin. Like, well, you don't know the world we live in. Really? You don't know the world they lived in. In fact, in verse 21, it says a large number what? Turned. The only way you could turn to the Lord is from turning from sin. So there was no sidestepping. There was no, I don't really want to, I don't really want to say. No, no, no. They said you need to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. Not because I'm not a sinner that I don't need to turn, but I've turned from my sin and I've turned to Jesus. He forgives sin. He loves you. So there was no sidestepping. It means that they were called out of their pagan idolatry. They were called out of their pagan sexual wickedness. They were called out of their corrupt business practices and, and put their trust in Jesus. He loves you. He'll forgive you. He'll receive you. It's a turning from sin, a turning to God that took place. And the effects of God's grace were undeniable. It says uh, when, when Barnabas came, he witnessed the grace of God. He's like, oh, my word, God's grace. We need to be stretched. You need to be stretched. I need to be stretched. Are you a missionary? Are you being stretched? Are you looking for ways to tell others about Jesus Christ? Are you building relationships? Are you loving people? The stretching church. Look at the strengthening church, verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit. Great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he found him, he brought him to Antioch for a whole year. They met together in the church. He taught many great people. That, you know, just, there was a lot of teaching going on. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. You know what? No matter what the century, no matter what the place, there are always those that are going to go like tell. That's the way I read that. I'm sorry. But it's like they heard what was going on. Like there's no phones There's no cell phones, there's no emails, no planes, no cars. But Jerusalem, 300 miles away, heard something's going on in Antioch. So they send Barnabas. Hopefully it was, their intentions was good. But notice they did not send the very Jewish Hebrew apostle Peter who was in Jerusalem. They sent the very Gentile, or at least from a Gentile land, Jewish Barnabas. Right, he was a Jew, but he was not from Jerusalem, he was from Cyprus. I I believe it was very wise on the church, this young church, or eight years old since the church, nine years old. It was a discerning decision that they made. And the point I want to bring out in these verses is how God was strengthening this church through the discipleship that was going on. 
And the first thing we see here is the wise decision to send the godly man who understood, because he's from Cyprus, pagan culture. So they send Barnabas from Cyprus. A lot of contextualization going on there. Let someone who understands the culture, let someone who understands what's going on up there, let's not send the very Hebrew guy, let's send the Jewish guy from, from Cyprus, man. Because Antioch, you know that place. He'll understand, he'll know what to do, he'll know what to say. So they send Barnabas up there. Remember Barnabas, chapter 4? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke writes that he was marveling at how wonderful the church was. They were unified, one heart, one soul, and everything they had, they had together, and there was no one without need. And then Luke says, and then there was Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, this is in chapter 4, which means son of encouragement. He, Barnabas, sold the field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. That says a lot about Barnabas, doesn't it? He's a Jew. He's from Cyprus. He's a Levite. He's from the priestly line. Like, if you're going to be a Hebrew, that's pretty cool to be a Levite. You're from the lineage of, of the priesthood, right? So he's a prominent Jew. He, he came from a, from a land that had racially mixed environment, so he's ready to respond to Antioch. He was also a generous man. He gave the money to the apostles to give to the church. He was also an encourager, the son of encouragement. They gave him that name because of an encouragement he was. You know what I love? Verse 423. Verse 23 says, When he came and saw the grace of God being poured out on the Gentile, he was what? What happened last week? Remember? Peter comes down from Caesarea and says, you're not going to believe what's going on up there. The Gentiles are being saved. They're like, oh, wait a minute. What are you doing up there? Like, really? I just told you, God is doing great things. The legalists want to know something. This is not supposed to be that way. Yet Barnabas, like, the grace of God is so happening here. This is awesome. Big difference. And he didn't have a begrudging attitude either. He didn't come down and go, I see the grace going on here. Well, I guess it's anybody could be saved. I guess it could be you. You know what I mean? Like, ah, uh, I heard that sermon today. All right, I think I'll go to my neighbor's house. I want to talk to you about Jesus. My pastor told me I should. You know, I, it, that didn't happen. They were happy. They were glad. The grace of God being poured out. Barnabas, it says, was full of the Holy Spirit. He learned. He leaned. He yielded to the Holy Spirit. We're going to come back to that. So there was discernment, a godly disciple, and now there was discipleship. Let, let me just define some terms, and uh, these are my terms. You might have your own. That's okay. I'm not stuck with them. There's not one great way of saying it, although some people think so. Uh, a disciple, literally a learner, uh, one who listens and follows a teacher, some teaching. A disciple of Jesus, someone who responds to the gospel and the call to follow Jesus. Matthew 16, if anyone come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So a disciple is someone who responded to the call, puts their faith in Jesus, and walks with Jesus. Gospel-centered discipleship resonates with the person and the work of Jesus. A disciple is someone who loves Jesus, walks with Jesus, constantly learning the gospel, relating in the gospel, and communicating the gospel to others. That's a disciple. I usually say discipleship is three things. I'll just give you this for free. One, it's transformation. It's the work of Christ in the heart. To be more like him, Romans 12, 2, be not conformed to this world, but what? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Acts 20, uh, excuse me, Romans 8, for, he, for, for those he foreknew, he predestined to be arrogant. No, to be conformed to the image of his son. So there is this transformation that takes place as we're disciples. Then there's assimilation, there's the mimicking of Jesus. Like if you're a disciple of Jesus, you should act like him. Right? A disciple is not above his teacher, the Bible says. Everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Rome, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Christ. Therefore, be imitators of God, Ephesians. Walk in love as Christ loved and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. What does that mean? Demonstrating him as you walk. Walk as he walked. Talk as he talked. Think as he thought. Love as he loved. Give himself as a sacrifice, not in an atoning way, but as a generous offering to others. So there's transformation, there's assimilation, and then there's always dissemination. There's mission. A disciple is someone living on mission. As the Father sent me, I send you. Go into the world. Really simple. Go into the world, make disciples of all nations. 
Discipleship has to do with following Jesus, being transformed by him, looking like him, and declaring the gospel like him. Really that, it's really that simple. But here in our text, and I'll just look at a couple things here, very important in our text. What you see here is Barnabas, look at Barnabas. He's called what? He's called the son of encouragement. It says here in the text, he exhorted them, look at that, all to remain what? Faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. So a disciple is discipling by telling everyone, he's exhorting them and telling them, remain faithful and steadfast to the, to the Lord. Now, the word exhort is the Greek word parakaleho, from para, which means come alongside. Kaleho, or, um, kaleho is to call, come alongside to call. It's a colorful word. You might have difference in your translation because different translators will, will translate that word a little bit differently because you have this strong word, kaleho, to call, Call to a purpose, call to, to uh, a, a truth. Come out. The Bible said we were called to salvation. Come out of darkness into the light. There's a call, a kaleo. And the word para, like paramedic, someone who comes alongside a little more sympathetic, they're encouragers, they're compassionate, they're considerate, they come alongside. So it's not just this compassion to hold your hand kind of guy, and it's not just some, hey, you got some issues. It's a combination. It's a combination of of grace and truth. It's a blend of both. That's what it means to exhort. And what you see here in our text, if you look, verses 19 through 21, you have evangelism. You have the gospel being declared. You have people responding. Down in chapter, same chapter 11, verse 25 and 26, there's instruction in the word. We'll get to that. But sandwiched in between, what do you have? You have Barnabas doing parakaleho ministry. We cannot grow as disciples. We'll not grow even in our evangelism or in our instruction without people that we give permission for that ministry in our life. To speak grace and truth. You see, if somebody's quick to point out truth in your life, you got this issue, you got that issue, and they don't love you and they don't come alongside you, you're not going to listen. It's hard enough to hear it. Just, it's hard because we're wicked and sinful and hard-headed. Or at least I am, okay? So you've you got to have truth and grace. You've got to have compassion and consideration. And you've got to have relationship and community. That, that's, what, that's this ministry that he's called to do. Right? If someone only speaks truth in your life, there's a sense of rejection. If, only, if people only affirm you and stroke your ego... Number one, they're lying. Number two, you won't repent of sin. Hebrews 3. This verse says this in Hebrews 3.13. Exhort, that's our word, parakaleho, one another every day. Every day. As long as it is called today. Last time I looked, today's still today. I, I don't know what that means. But the none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So the Hebrew writer is saying you need grace and truth every day. Otherwise, our hearts will become hard because of the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is deceitful. Denial is real. And we need people to give that license to, permission to, to speak truth into our life, to show us our need for repentance in relationship. Okay? I have some people like that. I hope you have some people like that. So please don't stand by the door and tell me, you know, your shirt looks wrinkled. or You, you know, it's like that's not what I'm saying. Okay? Growing in discipleship happens in community when you give somebody a license. Can it be abused? Yes. People take advantage of others. People don't know how to love. Yes, yes. It can be abused. It doesn't mean we shouldn't seek after it. Right? Cops, doctors, there's abuse everywhere, but that don't mean we don't go to the police. We need help. The doctors when we're sick. Right? When we're in authentic community as disciples, we give others permission to speak truth and love. We deal with the weakness and the stuff in our lives so that we can respond in repentance and in growth. And I'll tell you, and I'll say this before, and I said it once before a few years back, it cannot be done with Facebook. <laughs> Just text messaging, emails. It's, it's life together. You ever notice that when there is ap- the affirmation, that encouraging, that, that coming alongside, that tenderness, that we receive from one another, that aspect of this discipleship, uh, it, a lot of it's done with nonverbals. 
a smile, a look, um, a touch, um, so, you know, eyes, some, something, something that, you know, something that kind of catches you. It's, it's a facial expression, gestures, tone of voice, body language. Um, Brother Nathan, uh, one of the, the pastors here, um, you know, there's something about him and his body language that lets you know he loves you. Nathan French will put his hand on me, and you can just look in his eyes. Either I'm in trouble, <laughs> and he's trying to love me through it, or he just wants to be an encourager. Like, you could just, you could just look at him, and you're like, ah. Oh. You know what I mean? Because you could see that. So we need both. We need, we need speak the truth in love, and we need that to come alongside. That, that's, what, that's what he's doing. That's what Barnabas is doing. Disciples and discipling others about lovingly, patiently, but truthfully pointing others to Jesus. Look at our text. He says that he was exhorting them, what, to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. In other words, he's saying, look, it's not just all about just fellowship and, and coming to church, you know, to sing in kumbaya and sing in song. It's about remaining faithful, encouraging to remain faithful to Christ. Keep your eyes on him. The last thing you want to do when you're discipling someone and you're sharing life together is to have them to be your disciple. He said, I want to be an imitator. Imitate me because I imitate Christ. I don't want nobody to walk around like me. Right? You want them to look like Jesus. <laughs> Remain faithful to Jesus. And for his purposes, not my purposes. I want to walk with Jesus together so both of us or three of us or 12 of us in a community group are being more like Jesus. And what Barnabas is saying is, all right, I'm the exhorter. I can come alongside you. I can care for you, speak truth to you, love you, and, and put my arm around you, tell you tough things, but I can't teach you. So I know what I'm going to do. Verse 25, Barnabas goes and looks for Saul. He's like, I'm going to try to get the best Bible teacher in the whole planet from Tarsus to come to Antioch to do some Bible teaching. I'll be right back. Verse 25. He found him. He brings him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they're being taught. This godly encourager is pointing to the, to the, to the word of God, right? That this very young, multicultural, multi-ethnic church had very little of the word of God. They were pagans. What did they need to keep them straight? Sound teaching. Who is going to do the systematic teaching to the Gentile? Wise and discerning Barnabas said, I'm not the guy. I'm going to come alongside you. I speak truth and love to you. We need a Bible teacher. I'm going to go get Saul. I'm going to go get Paul. He was in Jerusalem. Now he's in Tarsus. He's back home. Commentators go, oh, what was Paul doing in Tarsus? Excuse me, in, back in Tarsus. He was in Jerusalem for three or four, you know, three, three years. He was in Damascus, then Came down, he, now he's at home. What was he doing at home? And I'm thinking, how do we know that? I mean, yeah, like who really cares, right? I thought, you know what, he probably went home because he wants to tell everybody about Jesus. All the kids he played baseball with and kickball, whatever you did over there, throw the rock, I don't know. But, <laughs> you know, he wants to tell him about Jesus. That's probably why. Some, most commentators point out that it's possibly where he was actually experienced the loss of all things in Philippians 3. Maybe he was, he was definitely disowned by his family. You can imagine when he went back home as a Christian in those days, right? We don't know, but we know this. Barnabas, the man of God, recognized that he did not have the spiritual gift of teaching and needed somebody else. Now, that tells me that Barnabas, not only generous, but he was also mature, right? A spiritual person, uh, someone who is at the level of, of saying, you know what, I don't have that gift. I'm not going to hold the church back because I don't have this gift. I'm going to find someone who does have that gift, and I'm going to humbly share the ministry with potential leaders. He doesn't do it alone. He's building a team, and he gives them responsibilities. You know why? Because Barnabas was not building his own kingdom. That's so important. He did not fear the ministry of Saul. He did not view it as competitive for his own interests, but for the betterment of the disciples and the glory of God. You can see that all over Barnabas. That is such an encouragement. It's not about my kingdom. It's about Jesus and his kingdom. So a whole year, they're in Antioch. The Bible exposition of the Old Testament, Jesus at the center, Paul is teaching it, Pharisee, ex-Pharisee Bible teacher. Paul's loving them and, and, and preaching to them and, and Barnabas coming alongside, encouraging them. What a great year that must have been. And when both are present, the teaching and preaching, 
The church is growing. Now, this cosmopolitan city becomes this main outpost we'll see as we go through the book of Acts for the missionary journeys. But now, at least we see the budding of this service, this giving of generosity they had as this church begins to grow by stretching and by strengthening. And now we see the serving of the church. Verse 27. Now, when the days came down, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. This did take place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined every one according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So what's going on? Number one, you have this cross-cultural, multi-ethnic evangelism, gospelizing, courageous gospelizing going on. God responds, many people turn to the Lord. New converts, new believers are immediately taken under the leadership of Barnabas. He's loving them up. They're strengthened by it, and they begin to evangelize even more. Then a team is assembled, because Barnabas goes to get Saul, who is in Tarsus, to come to Antioch and puts this team together, and they're developing leadership, and finally this young church begins to grow, and now they start serving other churches. They're going to do financial here, and then later on we'll see it was both in word and deed. It was finances and deed and word as they go plant churches in chapter 13. We'll get to that when we get there. But here I want us to see this Agabus. He's a prophet, or at least has the gift of prophecy. depends on where you stand on this. Okay, He's coming and he's saying that there's going to be a worldwide, a worldwide uh, famine. Now, I already dealt with prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14. It's online. You can look it up. Um, I do not believe there is thus saith the Lord prophets. It's over. We have the scripture. And there's nothing more that you could tell me thus saith the Lord in the same manner that this was told. And if somebody does say thus saith the Lord, I'm a prophet, and I'm adding to the scripture, there's really only one thing you can do, and that's run. Far. Don't go into any compound that has wire around it. Don't drink anything he gives you. Um, this is the final authority. Okay? Books are written. It's over. In the New Testament, we see the gift of prophecy, which I believe is for today, where someone speaks for God in, in, in a spontaneous prompting of the Holy Spirit with a message for edification, for the building up of the body. I find that in 1 Corinthians 14.3. The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement. But primarily, the New Testament gift of prophecy is taking the word of God with a sense of being gripped, convicted by it, by the work and the power of the Spirit, and delivering that message to the people. Turn to Jesus. Trust Jesus. This is what the gospel is all about. And people say, well, I read this passage. Can, can somebody give us a futuristic prophecy for the future? I would say, yes, it could happen. It's rare. I would be careful. It would be within relationships, within the church. With, you know, I, I would be very, very, very careful. Very, very careful. But could God speak today? I'm not going to put him in a box. So either Agabus was a prophet who was the last of the prophets since the Bible's been written, or he has the gift of prophecy. But either way, he comes to the church and he says, this is what's going to happen. And notice in our text, he says there's what? A worldwide, a worldwide famine. And what you see this church doing is responding with generosity because of what's going to happen worldwide. Think about that. It wasn't there's going to be a famine in Jerusalem, you should get money and give to them. There's going to be famine where you are. What do they do? They decide to give money anyway. They're going to be affected. That's generosity. That's sacrifice. Because they were going to be affected by this worldwide uh, 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 um, famine. But they say, no, we're going to give. You know, some people, you know, there's an ice storm coming. And all of a sudden, generators go up 10%, you know, with 400%. Like, when they see problem, they say, how can I gain from this? Not this little church in Antioch. They said, there's a problem. We're going to step up and serve the church. We're going to give out of our nothing so that others can have. That, that's huge. That is huge. We can learn a lot from that. We give to a church plant in Saratoga. Uh, Terranova Church in Troy planted a church. The founding pastor of this church is the pastor over there. We give financially to Alaska, Tajikistan, for the furtherance of the gospel in, in, in a global sense. But we could do more. And we need to pray about that. 
We need to see our finances come up, and we need to be able to, to give not only here at home, because it starts at home. Please don't be one of those people that say, you know what, I want to be a missionary, he has $50, give it to them. Don't do that. They need the money. We need to support global missions. But let us start at home, evangelize, share your faith. Let's work here and let's spread out. Let's give globally, let's work locally for the gospel and the spread of the gospel, amen? Pray that God would use us. Pray that God would use us. But how would he do that? How does God do that? How are we motivated to be like this church in Antioch? What would motivate us to be exhorters, to grow in our faith, to grow in discipleship, to, to make disciples of others? Look at back at verse 24 as we close. I don't want stay with me two more minutes, okay? Verse 24 is the key. It says that Barnabas, look, exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast steadfast purpose for why he was full of the holy spirit and of faith so barnabas was a great encourage exhorter because he was filled with the holy spirit now now follow me okay give me two more minutes in john chapter 14 and john chapter 15 and john chapter 16 jesus tells his disciples that after his atoning death his resurrection his ascension He was going to send, if you remember, a helper. Some translations say a comforter. He was talking about the the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Listen, do you know when Jesus said he was going to send the helper, the Holy Spirit, he called him, third person of the Trinity, parakletos. It's the noun of the verb parakleho that we studied back with Barnabas. The Holy Spirit, according to Jesus, called the other parakletos. The word in the noun form in Greek literature always pointed to a a legal advisor, a proxy, an advocate, someone who comes forward in behalf of and represents someone else. So if you're in court and you want an advocate, you have an advocate, someone hires an advocate or a defense attorney, what's he doing? He's coming alongside you. He's not only for you, looking out for you, but he's also speaking on your behalf. Right, He's contending, he's asserting himself for you. Jesus says, that's what the Holy Spirit will do. John 15, when the helper comes, I'll send him to you, the Father, and I will send the Spirit of truth. He'll proceed from the Father. He will bear witness, he'll declare me. John 16, when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but... Whatever he hears, he will speak. He will declare to you the things that are to come. He'll glorify me, or he will take what is mine and he'll declare it to you. Now, so, so this advocate, parakletos, the noun in, in John's gospel, will bear witness and give glory to Jesus. Only one other place in the New Testament, parakletos in the noun is used. You know where? 1 John 1, 1 John 2. It's used of Jesus the first advocate. If anyone sins, we have an advocate, Paracletus, with the Father, Jesus the righteous. He's the atonement, propitiation for our sins. Not only our sins, the sins of the whole world. So Jesus, the advocate, is standing before a judge and says, you know what, they're sinners, they're guilty, but I'm the advocate. I'm standing and speaking for them. I have come alongside them. Not only alongside them, I have come and died in their place for them. So yes, they're guilty of sin, but I died for them. In fact, Father, if you extract judgment on them for any of their sins, you're unjust because I already paid the penalty. That's the first advocate. Sin demands payment. Jesus made the payment for all our sins. Therefore, any extraction or wrath or, or, or penalty for our sin would be unjust. That's what our advocate is doing for us. What does all this mean? Listen, the first advocate Jesus has spoken for you and even put himself in your place, the finished work of Christ, on your behalf and for your salvation. The second advocate, the Holy Spirit, speaks to you and for you, always pointing back to the first advocate Jesus for his glory and fame. The reason Barnabas was such a great exhorter, encourager, a speaker of grace and truth, is because he was filled with the Holy Spirit who keeps pointing to the one who is full of grace and truth. See, do you see that? 
The second advocate is talking to you about the first advocate. He's exhorting you. He's coming alongside you in love and compassion. But he's talking. He's arguing. He's insisting. He's, res- he's got to resolve. And you know what he's telling you? He's telling me. He's telling me. The second advocate is telling me, look to Jesus. Look at all that he has done for you. Look how much he loves you and how much he sacrificed for you. Saul, excuse me, Barnabas, filled with the Holy Spirit. Come alongside. The Holy Spirit is speaking about Jesus, the true advocate. And he's encouraging others. Barnabas, full of the Holy Spirit, was a great encourager and speaker and and, and gospelizer, full of grace and truth, because he was filled with the second advocate who's exhorting and encouraging and speaking about the first advocate, which is Jesus and all that Christ has done for you and all that Christ has done for me. And when you see that, the more you see that, the greater you apply that, the greater you see that, the more full of the Holy Spirit you become, the greater evangelist, the greater discipler, making disciples, all that stuff that God calls us to do when we're filled with the Holy Spirit who's pointing us back to Jesus. So the question is, will you submit, will you bow your knee to King Jesus, be filled with his spirit, and give testimony of his greatness and goodness and grace and mercy to you? That's a call for me and for you. It's not about numbers. It's about as many people can hear the gospel. As I said, we don't know what's going to happen, what God's going to do, but I know what God won't do, and that's not going to expand through us. He'll pick some other means and some other people unless we open our mouths, give of ourselves, sacrifice, love, share, disciple, open homes, love people, but faithful to the Lord, steadfast in purpose. Can we respond to this morning? What God has put on your heart, the band's going to come up. Listen, we're going to sing a song. And it's a familiar song. And sometimes the familiarity of a song might be, I don't know. I, I know we're going to stand in a moment. Don't stand yet. Just give me one more minute. We're going to sing, Take My Life. But I don't want it to be just words on a screen. We're singing. Everybody's singing. The band's playing his words. And I'm singing it. That's not the way a response is supposed to happen. What we're supposed to do is respond because, not to me, but to King Jesus. He's alive and well. So if we, as we sing this song, Take My Life, I pray that the Holy Spirit will prompt you to do that. Areas of your life that you're holding on to. Ways in which you haven't opened your life, your heart, to the work of the Holy Spirit. So that the Holy Spirit will encourage you and come alongside you pointing to Jesus so that you can then point others to Jesus too. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we pray that the song of response will not be just a song. That our hearts will be warm toward the gospel. Father, if we need to repent of sin, we shall do so. Turn from our sin and turn to you. Maybe there are areas in our life that we need to repent of. Maybe there's attitudes that we need to turn from. Maybe there's perspective of certain people groups that have been holding us back from loving them and pointing them to Jesus. Lord, we pray, um, Lord, that you would open our hearts and minds to see the gospel more deeply that we were once enemies of you and you sought us and, and, and pursued us and, and showed us the great and glorious things of Christ, that we were left to ourselves, it would be eternal damnation for all of us. So we pray that the gospel and the power of the gospel and the ministry of the gospel and the motivation of the gospel will take us to our friends and family, our own community, and then to the world. Father, help us to respond in a way that brings you glory and honor, we pray. In Jesus' name.